Please remain standing as we read God's Word this morning. Our focal passage comes from Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word has been proclaimed this morning. Lord, we just pray for your presence among us this morning to open our hearts and our minds to receive the truth that you would have for us to hear. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. Well, good morning. It's good to be back with you. Everybody doing well today? The weather is cooler. It feels nicer outside. I'm glad to see that. Hopefully this is the beginning of an early fall. I'm in the construction business and I work outdoors about eight or nine hours a day and that 105 degree heat we've had has just not been any fun. So I'm looking forward to the cool. I hope you are too. I got a lesson for us this morning that I want to go through. I want to take a look at concerning the good news on your screen here this morning. What is the good news? Well, we've been looking at this passage in Romans chapter 1 for the last couple of weeks, talking about the gospel. And we're going to spend the next several weeks discussing that very topic as well. As we seek to grow together as Christ Church and as, as Emmanuel Baptist Church, as we grow together in the coming weeks and coming months, we want to seek to understand just what the gospel is and how it impacts every single area of our lives. Now, we spent the last couple of Sundays talking about being unashamed of the gospel, that the gospel is something that we should be proud of, not ashamed of, for a number of different reasons. And this morning, what I want to talk about is exactly what is that gospel that we should not be ashamed of, that gospel that we are so proud of. The gospel is something that's very hard to define, I think. It's hard to put it into terms. Now, there are a number of different definitions that people have used over the years. But I want to go with a really simple one today. The good news, or the gospel, is simply this. God saves sinners. That's all there is to it. Now, there's a lot of theological truth that goes into that statement, and we're going to talk about a fair amount of that today. But really, it is that simple. God is saving sinners. He has done so since the creation of man. He has done it in times past, and he's still doing it today. And that salvation is available from God today for each and every one of us here today. And that's what I want to discuss with you, the good news that God is saving sinners. And it's important for us to understand what the gospel is. We need to have an understanding of what that plan is what it is that we are involved in, what it is that we are building. Now, in the construction business where I work normally, we have a set of blueprints. That is the plan for everything that we're going to do concerning any particular project. It contains all of the details about how to build a house or how to build a building. If there are any questions, we consult that plan. We consult that blueprint. We match up what goes on in the field with what goes on on the plan in the office. The gospel by a bit of a stretch, is very similar. This is the plan. It's contained in this book. And when we go out in the field, we want to compare what we see and do and how we act and behave in the field with what the plan tells us we should, how we should be acting, behaving, and, and being in the field. 
So that's what I want to look at with you a little bit this morning is this plan that's contained in this word. Sometimes I think it's easier to define something rather than by what it is, but rather what it does. Some things are simply hard to define in and of themselves. I could come up with probably 25 different definitions of what the gospel is and never encompass all that it is. A much easier way for me to explain it to you and for us to understand is what the gospel does. And that's the context I want to look at this morning, what the gospel does. And that is found in Romans chapter 3. So if you want to turn there, a number of the passages will be on your screen this morning. But that's the passage that we're going to examine. And we're going to see how this encompasses all that the gospel is and all that the gospel does. Now, the Apostle Paul has been writing through these first three chapters of the book of Romans, and he's been explaining a number of different theological truths. But when he comes to chapter 3, now he will begin to encapsulate the gospel itself in one paragraph. One commentator made the comment that this was the most important paragraph ever written down. Of any book, of anything, of any chapter, any verse in the Bible, this was the most important paragraph ever written down. It contains the entire gospel in just five verses. It tells us everything we need to know about what the gospel does in our life and how we should respond to that in our life. So that's what we're going to go through this morning. And as we begin, it's important that we understand that the gospel begins with God. The gospel always begins with God. The gospel is not something that man brings up from within himself, but it begins with God. God does something. And if you look in verse 21, we're going to see that the gospel, the first thing that it does is it achieves God's purpose. Verse 21 tells us, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Look at the first two words in that verse there, but now. That's a conjunctive. It's connecting the thought in this verse to the previous teaching that the Apostle Paul has outlined in the last couple of chapters. He spent two chapters talking about sin and depravity. He's talked in chapter 1 about the depravity of all mankind, how that they were given over to all kinds of wickedness and debauchery and idolatry, and that God had given them up to a debased mind. He basically gave them what they wanted. Their sin nature desired it, craved it, and they indulged in it completely, and God essentially released them to go and indulge in the thing that they wanted. And Romans chapter 2 talked about God's judgment on that sin. It says, because you have lived this way, because you've turned away from me, because you have sought after the things of the world, because you've engaged in idolatry and all kinds of wickedness, judgment is one day coming on that sin. This passage connects to that. Because in the end of that last passage, it talks about how a certain group of people, God's chosen people, the Jews had been living their life. And he sets up this contrast between the Jews and the Gentiles. He says, the Gentiles never had the law. They never had any standard. They were a law unto themselves. They lived however they wanted to live. But you had the law. You had the standard. It doesn't make you any better for having the standard. In fact, it makes you a little bit worse because even though you knew the standard, you knew what God expected, you turned away from it and you didn't live up to it. And he connects his teaching here in chapter 3 now. He says that even though you had the law, something greater has come along. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested. In the past, the righteousness of God, or excuse me, the righteousness of God we think often reflects just what it says, the righteousness of God, that he is holy, that he is separate, that he is the best, that he is the highest, that he is the most powerful, all of the things that are associated with righteousness. But what's really in view in this particular verse here is not necessarily the righteousness of God himself, 
but rather it is a righteousness that God confers on us as his people, as believers. It says, but now the righteousness that comes from God and is conferred upon you has been manifested. It's been revealed in another way. In the past, God spoke through the law. He set up the standard of righteousness in the law. He said, if you want to be like me, if you want to be my people, if you want to know what I expect, the law is that standard. That is the standard that you must live up to. The law was the righteousness of God for all intents and purposes. But the Apostle Paul says now in the time of the gospel, in the time after Christ has died on the cross, the righteousness of God or the righteousness from God is manifested in a different way. It's revealed in a different way. It's revealed in Christ. He says that this righteousness from God is manifested apart from the law, even though the law and the prophets testify to it. They speak of it. They hint at it. The Old Testament books, of which the Jews would have been familiar in this passage spoke of the gospel in a hidden and what the the New Testament calls a mysterious way. It talks about it, it hints at it, but it doesn't come right out and say it. Paul says now that Christ has come, it has been manifested or revealed in a new and greater way. We have something new that we didn't have before. It's been revealed. And what has been revealed here is that it is God's intention to save sinners by grace. It's God's revealing that that was always his plan. It wasn't ever God's intention for anyone to be saved by the law. That was the standard that all men were expected to live up to. God set that standard. He says, you want a standard to live up to? Here it is. Go and do it. The problem was none of us could do it. No one could live up to that standard. But the Bible also records a number of instances where where men, where people were saved apart from the law. Even though all men failed and fell short of the law, some were saved. And Paul's going to move on to explain about some of those people. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning is how is it that we are saved apart from the law? If I can't live up to the standard that God has set, how can I then be saved? How then can I live in harmony or live in peace with God? The gospel comes and it wipes all of that away. The gospel takes away all works. It takes away all need to live up to that law. It doesn't mean that God's law or standard has changed. It simply means that we have recognized that we are unable to live up to that standard And that God has another way in order for us to become saved. And that is through his grace. So the gospel achieves God's purpose in saving sinners. When God created us in the beginning, when he created mankind before the first feet ever hit the ground, God knew that we would sin. He knew that we would fall short. And God already had a plan to deal with that, how we fell short. The the gospel was never meant to be a backup God didn't institute one plan, and when he found out that didn't work out, he moved over here to plan B. The gospel was always the plan. It wasn't always revealed in the past or in the Old Testament, but it was always the plan. So the gospel, Christ coming and dying, paying a substitutionary death uh, for all of us on the cross, that fulfilled or that achieved God's purpose in saving sinners. But secondly, the gospel we want to see is appropriated through faith in Christ. The way it's appropriated is through faith in Christ. It's not through works. It's not through the law. It's not through living up to any arbitrary standard. It's not through anything that I can do in and of my own power. It's not of me being really good or more good than I am bad or the scales of justice kind of thing. It's one thing. It's appropriated through grace. Uh, Romans 3, chapter, or verse 22. The righteousness of God, or the right standing before God, comes through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. This righteousness, this right standing that we get comes from God, but it comes and it's mediated through the work of Christ. 
When I place my faith and trust in him, I am counted righteousness, this passage says. The righteousness of God comes through faith. So we see that righteousness or right standing before God was appropriated by grace first, but also mediated through faith in Christ. Right standing is appropriated through Christ, and it has always been this way. And the apostle goes on in chapter 4 to give a number of examples explaining this, this truth. He said it's always been this way. God has always saved people by faith. Uh, in Romans 4, chapter 4, or Romans chapter 4, verse 4, excuse me, verse 1, getting ahead of myself. He says, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Paul goes all the way back to the very beginning of the Jewish civilization, the forefather, the, the patriarch of the Jewish nation, Abraham. And he says, Abraham lived before the law. The law did not even exist at this time. So then how was Abraham saved? Was, it, was he saved by the works of the law that didn't yet exist? He says, no. It says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Grace is appropriated through faith, which achieves righteousness. It worked for Abraham, but he continues on. He says, no works can earn righteousness. In the following passage, verse 4, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. No amount of works is ever going to take us to salvation. No amount of works is ever going to restore our peace with God or bring harmony with God. If you work for it, you've earned something. Grace is said to be free. There's no cost to it. It's something that is given freely by God to those who believe. There is no work that can be done. If he worked for it, he's earned it. In this case, grace cannot be earned is what he's saying. He says that the one who does not work but believes in him, his faith is counted as righteousness. It's not the effort that I make. It's not trying to live up to an artificial standard. It's not all of the things that I do trying to win favor with God or trying to tip the, the scales of justice in my favor. It's about believing the one who justifies. God has laid out a plan in order for us to become saved. It is believing in that plan. But more importantly, it's believing in the one who has determined that plan, who, has control, who is in control of all things, including my eternal destiny. Righteousness is available to everyone by faith, both Jew and Gentile. Jumping ahead a couple of verses to verse 16. He says, this is why grace depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Now we know that the promise that God made to Abraham, that he would be the father of many nations and that many nations would be blessed through him, that the Messiah would come through him and so forth and so on. This is why it is through faith, so that the promise would rest on grace. The law did not exist when Abraham was given the promise. It hadn't yet come into being. But God had made a promise and he used himself as the basis upon which to trust that it would occur, that it would come to pass. God was the standard. God was the thing that the promise was based on. That's why it was trusting in God and believing in God that gained righteousness rather than trying to work for it. The promise had to be based on grace. That's why it came through faith. So we see here that the gospel achieves God's purpose, but it also is appropriated through faith. Thirdly, we need to understand that it addresses my sin. This is something I think that we often skip over today in our gospel presentations or talking about the gospel. Any gospel presentation that does not address sin is not a true gospel presentation. 
Our sin is the very reason that we are separated from God. It's the very reason that we need to be restored to God, that we need to have our peace regained with God. It is our sin. And in verse 22 and 23, the apostle writes, For there is no distinction between Jew or Gentile. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Paul lays out here that no one is free from condemnation. No one can escape this judgment. All of those people that he talked about in chapters 1 and 2, he identifies here again in verse 23. He says that all of those people have sinned. Everyone has sinned. There is no distinction between Jew or Gentile. All men have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. Sin is what separates us from God. It is that thing in our life that separates us from God that causes a chasm in that relationship. It happened in the garden with Adam when he ate of the forbidden fruit. And that sin that he committed did something to change the fabric and the DNA of the human race. And that was passed down to each and every one of us through time, succeeding through the generations where we all have inherited a sin nature from our father Adam who sinned, and we all therefore have become sinners. And as soon as we really are able, even as young children, very quickly ratify that sin nature that exists in each and every one of us. Some would say, well, I'm not born a sinner. That, I disagree with that, but even if I follow your logic out for a minute, you very quickly at a very young age will ratify that sin nature of yours that I know exists there. Meet any two or three-year-old child. They are very defiant. They are capable of sin. They are capable of being selfish and hurting others and putting, other, putting themselves ahead of others and all kinds of things. That sin nature exists. That's what he's referring to. He says, all have sinned. Every man, every person, it doesn't matter who you are, there is no distinction. All have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned, hence all are separated. If everyone has sinned, everyone is separated from God. And they have all fallen short. They, meaning... They fail to be acknowledged by God or recognized by God. That separation has gone so deep that God even fails to recognize who they are. They have fallen short of relationship with God. They are out of relationship. They are separated to the degree now that their sin brings condemnation in their life. So the gospel addresses my sin because of my separation from God. The good news about the gospel is is that God overcomes that. In the gospel, our sin is overcome and we can be restored in a right relationship with God through the gospel. So number four, the gospel alters my standing before God. Something happens in the gospel. When I place my faith and trust in Christ, it's not just a simple God just wipes away the sins and pretends that they never existed. There are a number of things that need to occur in order to accomplish my salvation. My standing is the first thing that needs to be altered between me and God. As a sinner, as that person who has fallen short of the glory of God, I stand here condemned, convicted, and basically on death row, awaiting my execution because of the sin that I've committed. The gospel alters that standing. It moves me from my place of condemnation to a place of innocence. It's very similar to what happens in a court trial. As you look at someone who is accused of a crime, who is tried of a crime, but until they are convicted of that crime, they're still They're still what? They're deemed innocent until proven guilty. In our case, we're already deemed guilty, but God sets that aside and deems us innocent. Because when he looks at us because of our relationship with Christ, he doesn't see our sin any longer. He sees Jesus in that. So my standing is altered before God. Justified simply means to be declared innocent. Even though I did it, God doesn't pretend I didn't do it. He doesn't wipe it away like it never happened. He simply declares me innocent of it because of what Christ has done. And he says in verse 24, those who believe, all who believe, and are justified by his grace 
as a gift. Those who believe are justified by his grace as a gift. Justified meaning to be declared innocent. Grace meaning unmerited favor from God. You are declared innocent simply because God chose to, to bestow grace upon you as a free gift. It was not anything that you did, not anything that you earned, not anything that you accomplished, but rather it was something that he simply bestowed upon you out of his own sovereign will. So grace was earned not by works, but by faith, by trusting in someone, by believing God and having it counted as righteousness. The gospel accomplishes that. It moves me from condemnation to justification. I go from being condemned, guilty, and on death row awaiting an execution to moving into the light, being justified, declared innocent, and brought into relationship with God. Romans 5.16 talks about this. He says, in the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, referring to Adam. Free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Okay, There was one sin that Adam committed in the garden that brought condemnation to all mankind. Because of that one sin, it changed the fabric and the DNA of the human race where we all inherited a sin nature that has been passed down through the generations and we all are guilty of that sin. That one trespass brought condemnation to an entire race of people. One sin brought sin and death. But the free gift, the gift of grace, even though despite all of the many sins that had been committed since then, brought life. It brought justification. It brought that right standing before God. When God now looks at me, he sees me now as righteous. He sees me as right. He sees me as justified, as innocent of all of those crimes because of the mediatorial work of Christ on the cross. That's what he looks at and that's what he sees. I've moved to a place now where there is no condemnation for me. Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Those who have come to believe, to trust in him with their faith for their salvation... There is no condemnation that awaits them. Their sentence has been wiped away. There is no condemnation left for them. So the gospel alters my standing in that way. It moves me from one place to another, where now God can bestow upon me the things that he has desired to. Fifthly, it accomplishes my salvation. So The gospel accomplishes my salvation. Verse 24, it says that this is available through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. It's not available in anyone else. It's not available any other way, but it's simply available in Christ. Redemption, restoration. Redeemed simply means to be bought out of or to gain something back in return for a payment. It really gives the idea of a ransom, although ransom is kind of a difficult term in our own time today because it connotes a lot of different things. But it really means to pay a price for something. A ransom had to be paid in order to gain something back. And that's what is accomplished on the cross by Christ alone, it says. At his crucifixion, on that cross, he ransomed you or redeemed you out of the bondage in which, he lived, in which we lived. Christ alone redeemed us through this because he stood in our place. All of that sin that was committed throughout time and our own personal individual sin as, as people, as sinners, stored up for us punishment. It stored up for us a penalty that, that needed to be paid Christ stood on that cross, stood in our place, and took that punishment, took that penalty, thereby buying us out of the penalty that was due for us. Our penalty was excused because of what he did. We were redeemed from something. We were redeemed from sin and death. That's where we live. That's where we stand. That's who we are. Romans 6 talks about that concept. In verse 20, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. 
You all were slaves of sin at one time. Every one of us was. We were given over to it. We were wholly controlled by it. We could not not sin. It was in our nature. That is who we are. Before we knew Christ, before we placed our faith and trust in him, we were sinners. And the end of that sin, the passage says, is death. We were free in regard to righteousness. We couldn't be righteous. We couldn't commit a righteous act because at its heart, every righteous act committed by a person is still sinful in some way. Even when I try and help and do someone a favor, I'm still benefiting from it somehow. Humans can't really commit a selfless act. He's saying here that you were redeemed from sin because you were slaves to it, but you were bought out of it. He says, what fruit were you getting at the time from the things of which you are now ashamed? When you were sinners and committing all of these acts, doing all of these heinous things that today, now on the other side of faith, on the other side of the cross, you're ashamed of, what benefit were you getting out of all that? There was no benefit. There was nothing. For the end of that sin, of all of those things you were doing, is death. The passage concludes... The end of these things is death. So we were bought out of that, out of that slavery to sin. We were bought out of death. We were ransomed and saved from what we were rightly due. That's what the gospel accomplishes in us. It moves us from a place of being condemned to death because of our sin from moving to a place to where we are righteous and escape that penalty that we are due. But we don't only escape something. With the gospel, we need to understand that we don't only get redeemed from something, but we're also redeemed to something. God doesn't just pull us out of the pit and put us back on level ground. He does that, but he also redeems us to something. Verse 22 continues, but now, there's those words again, connecting it to what he said before, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, because you've moved from one side to the other, I either have to serve God or I have to serve sin. I can't do both. I serve one or the other. He says, now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to two things, sanctification and its end, which is eternal life. So I'm redeemed from sin and death, and I am redeemed to sanctification and to eternal life. God says, I've saved you out of the pit. I've pulled you out of the pit, but I'm not going to just put you back up here on level ground, but rather I'm going to continue to raise you up. I'm going to continue to make you holy. I'm going to continue to make you righteous. In the gospel exchange at my justification, I am deemed righteous by God. He now sees me as innocent. He sees me as righteous. But that takes time to play out in my life. The gospel does that. It moves me on towards sanctification, the process of becoming holy. That's something that we as Christians need to remember is that sanctification is a process. It's something that the gospel... uh, produces in us or works out in us this process of becoming holy. We don't get it all overnight. None of you did. I didn't. When we became saved, it was a process, and it goes on throughout our entire life. The redemption that we get is to that sanctification, to that process of becoming holy. God will continually work inside each and every one of us, moving us along that path until we are completely conformed to the image of Christ. And that's what he says here, and he says, and the end of that is eternal life. Really, What he's connoting here is that it will take forever. (laughs) And that probably doesn't surprise a lot of you that the process of becoming holy is going to take forever. But the end of that, when we are finally made to be just like Jesus, will be our eternal life. That will be our benefit. That will be what we receive as a blessing out of this. So righteousness is seen here as sanctification, but the blessing that we get is eternal life. That blessing is present tense. We need to understand in this passage, it's present tense. He doesn't say that if you do everything right and live a good and holy life, in the end, you will get salvation. 
or you will get eternal life. He says you have it now. It's present tense. The problem is, is that not many of us are living that way today. We don't live as if we're living in a salvation uh, lifestyle or in an eternal life lifestyle. I think many of us are still convinced that that is something yet future. That when I die, I go to heaven. That's eternal life. And while that's part of it, that's not all that it is. All that it is, eternal life really, as John defines it, is to know God. Knowing God is what eternal life is. That's one of the things that we get in the gospel exchange. We are bought out of sin and death. We are redeemed to righteousness, to sanctification, and eternal life. We get to know God as he really is. So we receive that. Number six, the gospel also averts God's wrath. You look at verse 25 there. Uh, Continuing on from 24, Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. All of the sin that was committed by all of mankind stored up a penalty that was due. We've covered that a couple of times already this morning. That penalty was going to be paid out in the form of God's wrath. Often I think that we think of wrath in our own human terms today as something that is wrought out out of anger and out of hate and out of revenge. That's not the type of wrath that is spoken about here in the passage. The Bible never speaks of God's wrath as being fleshly or sinful or anything like that or arising out of feelings of anger or hate or revenge. Now, God hates sin, obviously, but it's not saying that God does this out of some cold-blooded revenge to get even with us. God's wrath is holy. It is righteous. It is just. God is a holy God. Sin offends God. He cannot be in the presence of it. Sin demands a penalty. It must be punished. And that punishment is dealt out through God's wrath, his punishment of sin. That wrath or that punishment was laid on our heads as sinners. We each were due this wrath. But Christ stood in our place. That's what this verse says here, that God put forward his own son, Christ, as a propitiation or as a substitution or as an appeasement of God's wrath. He's saying, in our place, God put Christ there to take all of the wrath that was due to you and I and carried it out on Jesus on that cross. And because he has taken all of that wrath, all of God's uh, punishment for sin, we now stand in a place for those of us who believe and trust in Christ as Savior where we avert that wrath. That wrath has been moved on from us to Jesus and we avert it all together. Uh, satisfaction of the penalty gained by the shedding of blood. That's what propitiation is referring to here. Sin carried a penalty. It carried a price. And the only way to pay that price was through shed blood. In the Old Testament, the law pictured that shed blood through the sacrificial system where animals, bulls, and goats were brought into the temple and they were slaughtered there and the blood was used as a propitiation for the sin that was committed by the nation Israel. Jesus, it says here in the Bible, fulfilled all of that. That now, because of his sacrifice, because of his shed blood, it has fulfilled the sacrifice for all who would believe, for all who would trust in him as Savior. The blood had to be shed in order to accomplish paying the penalty, and God put forward his own sacrifice. He didn't call on us to put forward the sacrifice. We didn't sacrifice ourselves. It wouldn't do any good anyway. If you and I stood on the cross, it still wouldn't satisfy the penalty that was due for sin. But God put forward his own sacrifice, his own son, his most valued thing, his most valued person. He put him forward in order to stand in the place of us. He says in Romans 5, 9, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, that blood that has been shed on the cross, that sacrifice has been made, and through that we have been justified or declared innocent. Since we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. 
If that penalty has already been paid, if, that, if it's already been paid on the cross, the blood has been shed, we've been deemed righteous now, we avert that wrath. God takes all of that penalty away. We avert that. In verse 10, he continues, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God, okay, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, right? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were sinners, God still moved or acted to reconcile us back to God. So we received something great and wonderful there. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So we gain something in his death, but we gain so much more in his life. And the gospel provides all of that. We need to understand that the gospel impacts every single area of our life. It's not just my salvation or where I go when I die. The gospel and our salvation is so much more. It changes everything about who I am today, where I stand. It changes who I'll be tomorrow and where I'll be next week. It should impact every aspect of my life from my behavior, my attitudes, my actions. I should be living now with a sense of accomplishment, a sense of joy, a sense of peace over what has been accomplished on my behalf because I have now missed out on the wrath that had been stored up for me because of my sin and that has been placed on Jesus and now I will reap the benefits of what he has done on the cross. What he has earned there for me that I deserved, he stood in my place. So the gospel averts God's wrath but it also affirms God's righteousness. Number seven in our quick fly through the gospel here. The gospel begins with God, it also ends with God. I receive many blessings and many transactions take place in the process of the gospel, but we always need to remember that it begins with God and that it ends with God. Uh, Romans 3.25, this, all of this that we've just talked about, all of everything that Christ did, God's plan, all of this was to show God's righteousness. God did it all to show His righteousness. Never says here that God did it for you, that God did it for me or anybody else. He did all of this to show his righteousness. The Westminster Confession says that we exist to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's why God created man, to bring glory to God. God is most concerned with his own glory. He created us for relationship in order that his glory could be shown throughout the universe. In the gospel, God has made a way for us to be saved from our sin through Christ in order that he can demonstrate his glory again in the highest way throughout all of the universe. It says here that he did this in order to demonstrate his own righteousness, his own holiness, or really the way this word should be interpreted is his own justice. That God didn't ignore sin. That God didn't just let it go. He didn't just wipe it away. That God has fully satisfied the demands of sin, the penalty that was required. He has taken care of it in Christ. The passage continues. This was to show God's righteousness. Why? Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. All of those people who lived in Old Testament times or prior to the cross committed sin. None of them were able to live up to the standard of the law. None of them were perfect. According to the word, they should have died. They should have reaped the eternal punishment that was promised in Genesis for sin. But they didn't. They didn't die right away. And some of, it said, some of them, it says, were even saved. Abraham, the example the apostle gave us a moment ago, he believed God and it was accounted to righteousness. How does God just ignore sin? He can't. 
He's a holy God. Sin demands a punishment. And God carried that out in Christ. He says the reason the gospel came in, the reason God did all of this was to demonstrate God's righteousness or his justice, that the penalty was paid. It was carried out. And that God is a just God. All of the people in the Old Testament didn't know anything about the cross, but they trusted God. They were looking forward metaphorically to what would happen at Calvary. They didn't know what would happen, but they were simply trusting God, believing in Him, and God counted it for righteousness. Those of us on the other side of the cross here today are looking back at the cross. We're looking back at what Jesus did some 2,000 years ago, earning our righteousness for us. But it's the same thing. Whether I'm on one side or the other, the righteousness, the justice of God is still demonstrated. It goes backwards and it goes forwards. It's both. And I know a lot of us have questions about that. How did that work in the Old Testament? How were people saved if Christ hadn't died yet? Because God had passed over these sins. He basically patiently waited until what he knew would happen happened. Until Christ came and died on the cross. He held those sins in in stasis, essentially, until Jesus died. And they covered those sins as well for those who believed and trusted God. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness or his justice to all of us. And it's important that we understand that because you could make the argument that God was unjust and not punishing those sins. But we need to remember that God is not locked into this thing of time, this rigid box that you and I are locked into called time. God saw Christ's crucifixion, the gospel, he saw all of that in time. It had already occurred as far as God was concerned. The people who lived before the cross looked forward to it. They couldn't see it. But in God's mind, it was already done. God had already accomplished this. God wasn't worried about his own righteousness or his own justice, but he did this in order to demonstrate it to us so that he could not be accused of being unjust. He passed over all of those former sins, all those sins by people who were saved that had been committed that hadn't been punished yet. This is what it came in to be. Verse 26, he continues. It was to show his righteousness at the present time. It was to show it now, the present time, or as the time of the writing. When the apostle recorded these words, God was demonstrating or showing his righteousness at that present time. But he's also showing it now. It's, it's continual. It's present tense, meaning it continues on. God is continually showing his righteousness. God is continually showing his justice. How is he doing that? Through the cross of Christ. Sin demands a penalty. It must be paid. God has made a way for that penalty to be paid. That can be appropriated through faith and belief in Christ and the atoning work that he did on the cross. So God has been deemed just. It says in verse 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and he might be the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. It's to show that God was just in passing over the former sins of Old Testament saints. It's also to show that he is the justifier of all who will live in the future. The cross goes both ways. It goes back and it goes forward. It covers all of the sin of the past, but it covers every sin of of people going forward for those who will place their faith and trust in him. That's a comforting thought to me. It's to know that God has already made a way. He has already made a plan to deal with the sin that we know will be committed by each and every succeeding generation. He did this to ensure his own righteousness, to demonstrate it, to bring himself glory, to show that he was just and he was able to justify people and that he was deserving of that. God demonstrated his righteousness in the past at the cross. He demonstrated it at the Roman church and he demonstrates it today in this present age of salvation. 
it is still continual. It is still available today. We need to understand that this preserves God's righteousness. God is interested in preserving his glory, his name, his holiness, his righteousness. The gospel he did in order to preserve that. It began to achieve his purpose, what he had laid out in the beginning from all time. He set that out. He set out with a plan to save sinners. The gospel, our salvation, began with God, but it also ends there as well. In between, we reap innumerable blessings, and a number of different things happen, but it begins and ends with God in affirming his righteousness. The good news for us is that God is still saving sinners today. He hasn't given up. This isn't something that's past, something that occurred in a time past. God is still saving sinners today. That salvation, that gospel truth is still available to you and I. For those of you who have not placed your faith and trust in him, it is available to you today. God is still in the business of saving sinners. You are here today as part of his eternal purpose. Don't think that God did not draw you into this room today to hear this message today. Not because of anything about me, but because his word would be spoken here. You are here as part of his eternal purpose. He brought you to this place. He created this intersection in time so that you would hear the gospel message proclaimed. That you would know and hear that the gospel is available to all who would believe. To all who would place their faith and trust in Christ. The judge has made a way for you. God is the judge. He is the righteous judge as, de as demonstrated by the gospel of Jesus Christ. He has made a way for you and I to become saved. Our question, our responsibility is to respond. How will we respond to what God has freely offered? God has made a way for us to be saved. He has offered it to us through grace alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, in who? In Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. That's what this whole story is all about. God began with his glory. He created us for his glory so that we might bring it unto him. And he created the gospel in order for us to bring glory to him as well. And it's appropriated by faith because of his grace. The question is, how will we respond? Will we reject that message that has been proclaimed? Will we reject what God has freely offered? Or will we respond in faith? And will we trust in him and what he is able to do and what he has done in the past and what he can do in the future? That's the question for us today. Let's pray.